Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the cover of the Brookside spin-off single Free George Jackson by Blazing Saddles had to be changed when the actor who played George Jackson complained and was replaced by a photo of some bloke standing with his back to the camera. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Gary Bainbridge. Gary, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Oh, I'm just hanging around Twitter as usual. I now work for the Manchester Evening News, where I produce all sorts of newsletters. So if you want any news about Greater Manchester, I'm your man. OK, well, I don't imagine the Manchester Evening News would have given much time or space to your first choice, which is, let's just say, a multicoloured nightmare, a multicoloured screeching nightmare that haunted me for years and years, and I'm glad someone else remembers it. Okay, that was Googie the Liverpool Duck singing Googie the Liverpool Duck, which is going to be running around my head for weeks and weeks now. Gary, what was Googie? The 1970s were like just rife with ventriloquists. I mean, absolutely riddled with them. And Penny Page was one of them. And she'd come up through the cabaret circuit in the Northwest, which is almost impossible to imagine these days. That sort of a chicken in a basket joint that seems to have died a death. And she had this duck puppet. And this duck's gimmick was that she came from Liverpool. Like, you know, it's not enough to have a talking duck, even though talking is one step up from Rod Hall and Emu. I kind of assumed she was a Liverpool duck because Penny Page wasn't any good at accents. And then, you know, like a lot of these acts, she ended up on a TV talent show. I can't remember which one, actually. It was Rising Stars, apparently, on the BBC in 1979, which I'd never heard of until I started. Because I'd never gone and looked at the history of Googie and Liverpool duck for a number of reasons. But apparently it's that. <laughs> oh, right, OK. And you? It was an opportunity knock or sort of new faces because it was on the BBC. But yeah, she was going to be the next big thing. And then she'd recorded this song as Googie the Liverpool Duck, which is, as you'll have heard, Googie the Liverpool Duck, explaining how she's a duck called Googie, who comes from Liverpool, which, to be fair, is similar territory to a lot of gangster rap. But I do wonder what happens when ventriloquists do novelty records. Like, did Keith Harris take Orville into the studio and put cans over his ears? Is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs> some sort of TV strike and whatever momentum she'd built up just dissolved. And then this single was, you know, a massive flop, apart from in Liverpool, because, you know, this was a time when Liverpool was being absolutely battered in the media around the country. And honestly, you know, there was this sort of real sort of Mersey pride thing that was going on where you could put out like a, a record of white noise with the word Liverpool on it. And Billy Butler and Norman Thomas would play it on the local radio. Or, you know, they'd play it at primary school discos. Yes. And everywhere you walk round there would be some girl on the other side of the street you know just at the other edge of it singing and my name is Googie Googie 
escape really loudly. It was everywhere. It was inescapable for a while. Absolutely, yes. Astonishing. I mean, I don't know what happened to Penny Page after that. I think maybe she popped up on a few children's TV programmes. I know one thing she turned up on, which is in 1986, Granada did a really weird one-off. I assume it was a pilot for, you know, an ongoing variety show called I Feel Fine. Obvious Liverpool link, where they just shoved everyone who was performing in Liverpool at that point from Stan Boardman to the real thing <laughs> in front of just a microphone on stage. Yeah, with rapid succession, just like, you're on, off, on, off. And she was on that with Googie. I remember thinking, oh, are they still going? And that, to be fair, that's like five years later, but at that age, it felt like an eternity. Apparently she also had Skittles the dog, which I have no recollection of. And also, like a lot of the 70s venture lookers did, like Roger DeCourcy, two acts, one for kids and a quote, blue one for adults because even the googie song kind of hints at that where there's a bit about i mean first of all googie claims to live up just by scotty road which for anyone who's not from liverpool scotland road had a reputation at one point for being the harder street except by the time this record came out that reputation was about 10 years gone because there'd been you know redevelopment work and people had been moved on to different places and also by scotty road well you're not living on here are you but also googie claims that my man's a docker and he's up to every trick and is always on the sick and that's kind of pitched above kids heads i think you would think so wouldn't you and also that is incredibly offensive if you are a docker i did read that she retired which is kind of understandable i do hope though you know to delight her fans she even these days occasionally whips out a googie well i've got to say that even as much as it's sort of a troubling memory to me just this basically if you're not seeing googie looks like an exploded one of those you know those rainbow afro wigs that people like jonathan king would wear in the 70s to be hilarious <laughs> just kind of looks like that but from what I've seen looking back now she was a good ventriloquist it was an original act and she was very very popular locally and I can't really although that song irritates me I can't really sort of say anything too negative really because it just isn't not that it isn't fair or anything just that it doesn't apply at all you know she's one of the last examples of that kind of act really this is something that struck me in the 70s in particular ventriloquists were so big and I remember once seeing a page in the catalogue you know when the catalogue used to come in like (laughs) September or October and you go through looking at all the toys with the magnifying glass was a page of ventriloquist puppet replicas so it had like Orville it had that weird do you remember when Emu was first marketed it was like an orange one with yes. fuzzier hair and also Collier's Cockerel apparently Norman Collier had a Cockerel puppet at one point really? I've since searched for information on that I can't find it anywhere and there were all of that I don't know whether Googie was on there or not but it was a huge thing it was a huge thing we had to make our own entertainment in the 1970s didn't we? I think the thing with Penny Page is she had her shot you know the likes of Roger de Corsi, you know, these acts that came up through, you know, the talent shows like Opportunity Knocks and New Faces. They had their chance and they did it and they got through. And if she'd gone on to one of the earlier shows or maybe even, you know, New Faces when Marty Kane brought that back, she might have been okay. I think she just had that one moment where, you know, she could have broken through and she didn't. And that was it then. You know, you've had your chance and that's it. Off you go. Well, I'm going to lay the blame squarely at the, I suppose, the port of one of my major obsessions, which is you mentioned that in a way she fell victim to the ITV strike in 1979 which you know did cause a lot of problems for people because basically there was no TV of the sort that would have had I know she came to a BBC show but the likes of Penny Page on regularly for months and months
months and months. Now, I'm fairly certain that she would have been booked to appear on a Saturday morning programme made in Liverpool, <laughs> which people claim was kiboshed by the strike, but it would have ended soon anyway. The Mersey Pirates. Oh, surely, God. surely she would have had a regular turn on that. Um, oh. That must have evaporated. Like, uh-huh. like the rain did immediately after the Mersey Pirate finished. <laughs> show god but she was the sort of person who would also always show up at things like the liverpool international garden festival in 1984 (laughs) forever doing things locally and i don't know do you get those local micro celebrities anymore not since rex macon died (laughs) oh we don't have to explain who rex macon was do we (laughs) I don't know. I think everybody's a micro-celebrity these days. They're all famous within a certain group. There aren't that many people who cross over to worldwide or national fame. Unfortunately, we don't all have puppets. <laughs> God, can you imagine if everyone on Twitter had a ventriloquist dummy that they made themselves? It doesn't bear thinking about. Just one thing, though. Do you know what label the single was released on? Tell me, Tim. I have no idea. It was Ace Recordings, which is owned by Penny Page's husband, David Alexander, as in the really successful cabaret singer David Alexander. So not much trouble securing a record deal there, I don't think. <laughs> That's quite the AR. Okay, well, moving on to your next choice now, who are a trio of gentlemen who probably had slightly more difficulty securing a record contract, and as it turned out, holding on to it. No Troubles by Ellis Beggs and Howard. I know who all of them are, but Gary, who were they? I was vaguely aware of them because the Beggs in Ellis Beggs and Howard was Nick Beggs, who was the bassist in Kajagoogoo. And when they sacked Lamal, he became the lead singer of what then became Kadja. I don't know why they changed the name. Maybe Lamal had the rights to Gugu. Anyway, every year the chart show used to do an end of year special. And one of the things they did was highlight three of the songs that they'd assumed were going to be hits. And in 1989, I think it was, one of them was Protection by the Montellas, which was a sort of soul band, white soul band. The second was Wasted Country by Gail Ann Dorsey, who I think was Bowie's bassist. Yes, yeah. And then the other one was Big Bubbles, No Troubles by Ellis Beggs and Howard, because it's been stuck in my head ever since. I'd probably sing the words, life ain't nothing but trouble, life ain't nothing but a bubble, about four times a week in my head, thankfully not out loud. I think the Nadir was when I was working at the Liverpool Echo about 10 years after that, and there was a photographer called Howard Davis who ran the electronic picture desk, and Philip Abellis, who was the health reporter, was asking him to do something. And next to both of them was a pile of Easter eggs that the features desk was sampling for <laughs> that feature. 
And I just said to my, my colleague, Barry, yeah, no, Gary and Barry. Actually, there was a Larry on the news desk and a Harry who was the court reporter and we were all on the same shift and you'd get phone calls which go, all right, Barry, no, it's Gary. Oh, Harry, do you want Barry? No, no, Larry. It's like constant. It was like an Abbott and Costello sketch, only not funny. Anyway, I'm digressing. So I said to Barry, look, it's Bellis, Eggs and Howard. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> not even Ellis, Beggs and Howard. Remember, they were in Ellis, Beggs and Howard. Well, Ellis was Simon Ellis, who I think was completely unknown at that point. But he's since gone on to produce the Spice Girls, S Club 7, D-Ream. So technically he's responsible for New Labour. <laughs> Austin Howard had been an early Stock Aitken Waterman act who did a couple of the, you know, when they were before they started doing the pop stuff, they were doing quite crad dance stuff. Mm. And he was one of their artists and he was always in bits in smash hits. And so they expected him to have huge hits that never quite came about. And I remember when Ellis Beggs and Howard appeared, more thinking, oh, that's him rather than, oh, that's Nick Beggs, which I don't know. Nick Beggs sort of seemed a given in some ways, <laughs> but they really were trying to ride the wave of there was that people were trying to insist in the late 80s that you liked sophisti-pop that was what you should be listening to and it had that real sort of digital watch funk vibe is the only way you can describe it you know that really kind of updated clinical sound to it and it got to number 41 big bubbles no troubles and i think that a couple of other singles that didn't really do anything and they were sort of over before the 90s began really but the main thing i remember about them was seeing the one i'm fairly convinced it was the ozone which was a well when it very first started it was a very different program it was just andy crane in the leather jacket sat in front of the top 10 reading it out and then it became a slightly longer sort of formless thing you know one of those things that there was having the ages introduced by graphics and captions rather than the presenter because Jane Middlemiss and so on came later but Ellis Beggs and Howard were featured on that when Big Bubbles No Troubles was out and they performed an exclusive live version of Summer in the City which sounded exactly the same as Summer in the City and that's the main thing I remember about them but the other thing was there were loads of outfits doing that names of three people thing at that point like for example there was Terry Blair and Anushka that Terry Hall formed. What mm. was going on? What was this Rod Jane and Roger Core thing that we're all trying to do? <laughs> That's a very good point. 41. I didn't realise they got that high in the chat. Do you think it's worse? Do you think it's worse to be 41 or to get to 39? Do you think it's worse to be just outside the top 40 or just within the top 40 and then fall out? That's difficult because immediately I've just thought of a band who only got to number 39, which is Airhead with Counting Sheep, <laughs> and a band that only got to number 41, which is Northside with Take 5. And they kind of, as sort of proto-Britpop post-baggy band, when they both sort of suffered a similar fate really you know it's like a flop album that now changes hands for stupid money on ebay so i can't decide between the two of them which would be the more psychologically damaging i'm not really sure i don't know i think he's 39 because you have appeared on top of the pops your name's appeared on top of the pops you may even have appeared on top of the pops but then the next week you're out of the charts that's oh, it. north side even though they're only at number 41 did get on top of the pops because somebody pulled out that week <laughs> I think that's the only thing most people remember about them. So we're not really going anywhere with this Northside Airhead equation. But Ellis Beggs and Howard, again, they're one of those 80s bands, a bit like people like Hollywood Beyond and Redbox, where you know, they sort of came and went at the time. And then you find this massive fan pages for them. And like I say, people paying, because, you know, that was the early days of CD. Very few copies sold on CD, very limited pressings. And now those original pressings, like I say, change hands for stupid money. Yeah. It's odd that they, did they find their audience... Halo James was another one. Did they find their audience later? Or was that audience always there? Just nobody paid any attention to them. <laughs> 
I think it was Richard Herring maybe who said, I only need 10,000 fans and I can make a living. Maybe it's the same thing, but maybe there are 10,000 people who like Nellie Speggs and Howard. Well, we know who three of them are. And we've heard of them. That's five people already, Tim. Come on. I mean, it's not a brilliant record, but it's not a bad record either. And again, you wonder what's worse, being notable for being really good or really bad, or just having a record where most people go, yeah, it's not bad, that. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? You want a strong reaction one way or the other. Well, at least Googie never got to do any digital watch funk, which I think we can probably, as generation being, being, maybe be grateful for that. But moving on to your next choice now, which is a complete change of direction, literally, because if I remember these toys correctly, you can never 100% predict where they were going to go. <laughs> Girl of today, Terry Daring is her name. She's carefree and lovely and performing is her game. Do want a wheelie up in the air. She's over the top with the wind in her hair. Can she make a big jump? And over the rat, Terry Summer's off the jump. Terry Daring's off to another town. Terry Daring and her trick cycle from Ideal. Okay, that's an advert there for Derry Daring, who, to all intents and purposes, was the female Evil Knievel. Gary, why? What do you mean, why? There's a good reason why. I'll tell you what, though, you're calling her Derry Daring, and I'm sure that's correct in the US. I think over here she was called Debbie Daring, because that's how I remember it. I can only find her online as Derry Daring. But the thing is, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. I mean, I might be, but... No, that's more than possible, because Derry seemed like an American name in those days, and American names were kind of almost be held at arm's length. I don't think it was that so much. I think the character was based, I'm told, on a stunt rider called Debbie. I can't remember her surname. And they didn't have the rights to her, so they had to change her name in America. They call her Derry Daring. But the thing is, when I was about three or four, so these came out in like 1975, 1976, and I was three or four back then, so I didn't know anybody called Debbie, so I have no reason to invent that name. But two, they changed the name of toys from the USA to the UK all the time. I mean, Clue is Cluedo, the, the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Wasn't Rock'em Sock'em Robots called something like your favourite best punch each other robots or something in the UK? That sounds very likely. It's possibly the Japanese name for it. And then G.I. Joe was Action Man, Super Joe was Commander Power. So obviously you know, there was an element of changing names. But also, if there's any time in British history that you're not going to bring out a toy called Derry, it's pretty much the early 70s. But we should just explain the Evil Knievel toy, which I think has kind of fallen off the cultural radar, was absolutely massive. I mean, for about 10 years afterwards people were getting them new as a Christmas present where basically mm. big red stand you wound it up off he went on a stump bike always at the angle you didn't expect to fall off the kitchen table and <laughs> probably break a bit off the bike <laughs> Exactly that. Well, she was exactly the same. She was made by Ideal, which is a same manufacturer. She had all, you know, the accoutrements of Evil Knievel. You know, obviously she's got a motorbike. She's got the windy up thing. Still had a white handle, but it was pink. But actually, for the early 70s, it was pretty feminist because she could do everything that Evil Knievel could do, only backwards and in high heels. Literally, because there is an outfit with high heels, I found. Yeah. But yeah. also, there is the action reporter costume. I'm not sure what that's got to do with jumping over buses on a motorbike. A <laughs> Western adventure which maybe I mean Evil Knievel probably did some Wild West themed stunts I'm sure and also the pop top camper van which basically she burst out the top of on a motorbike I think it was good though I mean because obviously she was girly you know and that's fine because there was that thing at the time where if you had a female counterpart to a male character she'd have to be proper girly like you got Batgirl on the Batman TV show she got lace on her bat cycle or like years before when the comics introduced Batwoman she had a utility handbag it was full of things like bat lipstick and bat 
compact mirrors and the powder back puff and God knows where else. But you got Debbie, Debbie Daring or Derry Daring, whatever we're going to call her. And yet she's got these accessories. They're all like proper action stuff. You know, there's the mountain climbing outfit. There's the action reporter outfit. There's a racing set. I mean, all you can get for Evil Knievel with different variations on jumping over things on a bike. You know, he's very one dimensional. But Debbie Daring or Derry Daring, I'd say he's a really good role model for girls at that time. Because they didn't have any other sort of characters who weren't that very sort of Cindy type of, you know, this is what girls do. They wear makeup and they do their hair and sometimes if they're lucky they might ride a horse but Debbie Daring was like no no you can do all of these things as well you don't just leave these for the men you can do these as well you say it was aimed at girls but while trying to find out what she was actually called in the UK I found some scans you know like advertising pages and catalogues every single one seems to be children playing with it were kind of you know in that 70s way androgynous but not in a Brett Anderson way just <laughs> in a, you know what is actually going on wait were they all look like Matt Berry. <laughs> I realise I'm insulting a load of like child models from decades ago there, but it did really stand out to me that you couldn't quite work out what gender they were. No, but I think that was very much true at the time, wasn't it? You know, you'd find, you know, even like Lego. Lego was never marketed to girls or to boys. It was just, you know, it was just Lego. An eight-year-old boy looks very much like an eight-year-old girl, especially you've got an 1970s hairdo. It is quite odd how big Evil Knievel was and also how, to an extent, he's almost disappeared as a pop culture reference, given that he wasn't even really... I imagine it was different in America where, you know, there were probably entire evenings of television given over to the bill to his stunts and, you know, you could actually go and see him live. Over here, it was really just on the news most of the time. Today, yes. Evil Knievel jumped over some buses but he was still absolutely every kid riding a bike would say look at me i'm evil can evil shortly before falling off <laughs> i went to see eddie kid when was it oh entry race course and yet he jumped over like a few cars and then he could only do it once because the front fork on his bike would get wrecked you know you'd sit there all day and you're watching some very dull cars driving up and down and then you know you might see somebody on a motorbike going past very quickly and then you get this one jump and then that was it that was what it's like for evil Knievel except every time he jumped you know he'd break 14 different bones and also one crucial difference was he really went in evil Knievel for the whole vegas razzle dazzle showmanship thing whereas eddie kid you know as talented he was kind of went for the neil morrissey and boone look <laughs> and it was always about wild living and you know leather jackets and then nearly set motorbikes but you know obviously that was his stock in trade anyway but yeah. I assume it was a deliberate counterpoint but there wasn't any of that glamour to him whereas Evil Knievel you know the whole point of the toy was it had the branding of his jumpsuit which was basically the Stars and Stripes redesigned a bit like the Captain America from the 70s TV pilots very very similar I'm sure the Captain America in those pilots was happened after Evil Knievel did you ever see the, the Evil Knievel doll as well if you look at the face of the Evil Knievel doll that does not look like Evil Knievel do you think it was a leftover one from I don't no, they were going to do Doom Watch figures or something, and then it wasn't popular enough, so they reused the Simon Oates head or something. I don't know. It's very likely, isn't it? Okay, we're well, moving on to your next choice now, which there may be an action figures tying in with this, there may not have been, but I can tell you one thing as we're going to come to. I'm insanely jealous about this. Hey kids, it's exciting when Bugs Bunny meets the superheroes Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin at the Baltimore Civic Center October 12th through the 15th. 
Bugs Bunny and all his pals, live on stage in a brand new show that's loaded with singing, dancing, fun, and adventure. Kids 12 and under save a dollar on reserved seats with special coupons available at A&P food stores. Get tickets now at the Civic Center and all Ticketron outlets. Okay, couldn't find a promo for the actual thing we're going to talk about, so that's an advert instead for Bugs Bunny meets the superheroes, a late 70s stage show. So, Gary, did you actually go and see Bugs Bunny in space? Oh, Tim, this is my Avengers Assemble, except only it was DC. So, basically, it was a mashup of the Looney Tunes characters with some of the DC Comics characters. So, it's Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman in a stage show. And I went to see it at the Liverpool Empire. I knew you'd have been to see it. I asked and asked and asked and uh, never got to go and see it. Oh, mate, you miss a thing that happened. It was a touring show. I, I mean, I don't remember a great deal about the story. I remember it was Porky Pig's birthday and the Joker and the Riddler, Catwoman and the Penguin wanted to spoil his party, which is not really their usual gig. And then at some point, Marvin the Martian turned up. Now, this is it. He wasn't called Marvin the Martian. He was called Antwerp for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe it was a cat food called Marvin the Martian. I don't know. Well, they call it Marvin the Martian in that case, given the usual practice. <laughs> but then they went to space and Bugs Bunny was in it. I have no idea how he got soul billing. And, you know, it was, I must have been maybe eight at the time, really enjoyed it. But the thing I remember most about it was how terrible the set was because there was a big safe that the baddies had robbed and had a cardboard door. And when the villains sort of opened and closed this door, there'd be, you know, a huge creaking sound effect, you know, give the impression of a really heavy cast iron safe. But the clasp had broken, so this cardboard door keeps slowly swinging open, and <laughs> sort of in character would have to sort of sidle across the stage and try to close it again. <laughs> in the end, they were just cracking up. On the... <laughs> there was nothing they could do to keep this safe closed. There are some photographs of it online. They've got to say, the DC characters, they're reasonable facsimile costumes. Yes. You know, they're not bad. The Looney Tunes characters, they are the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> it's literal. Like a life-size Tweety Pie in both directions. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't understand the story. I don't know what Earth this is set on. That was obviously a very important thing for me at that point. Earth Elf, I don't know. I don't get it. I mean, how can you have Sylvester and Tweety as being the same size? How does that work? How does that work? How does it work that they're the same size as Porky Pig? It doesn't work, Tim. I do get the impression now, and I'm not just saying this because I didn't get to see it, that maybe it looked more spectacular in sort of advertising and like stills in the foyer of the Empire than it actually did when you saw it on stage. Because what I've seen of it, I can't imagine it looked very convincing. I mean, given that 10 years after that, in the same venue, I went to see Doctor Who The Ultimate Adventure, which just about, just about managed to look high tech and sophisticated and didn't quite and you know they had a whole extra 10 years of technology there I'm not sure this would really come off yeah it wasn't in any sense a big budget production it was a little bit like going to Comic Con but when I say Comic Con I mean like you know Comic Con in somewhere like Coventry and yet you couldn't queue up and ask for Yosemite some sort of crap <laughs> But it was a thing around then of, because I did see, I assume it was the Empire around this point, the touring show of Paddington, which I think is where that vocal version of the Paddington theme originally came from. But the bloke being Paddington had a blue duffel coat, he had the hat on, and a load of shoe polish on his face. There was no attempt to make him look like a bear at all. It was basically Wurzel, I remember thinking, have they sent Wurzel Gubbage on by mistake? <laughs> I remember being sorely disappointed by the sheer lack of proper Paddington-ness in it. It sounds like you got a slightly better deal at least costume-wise. 
nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would have been able to pick them out in a crowd as being, you know, Batman and Robin, but, you know, there was certainly no blackface. I'm happy to say. No, this was bareface, be fair. It's okay, fair enough. But honestly, things are a lot better now. I remember taking my own kids to see High Five, which was a band. Oh, was that that thing that was a bit like Steps? It used to be on very early in the morning on Channel 5. The very same. I remember taking them to see that at the Empire, and they were taken care of a lot better than I was taken care of. There was a lot more thought that went into that show than went into Bugs Bunny in space. I think now they've decided the children are much more discerning. Well, one very weird thing happened when I was looking for more information about the actual Bugs Bunny in Space stage show, because I couldn't even really find the data around the UK. What I did find out, though, was there was another Bugs Bunny in Space. In September 1977, to cash in on Star Wars, CBS slung together a load of shorts in which Bugs Bunny goes into space and got new links with basically Bugs and on parodying Star Wars. And the thing is, there is nothing about that out there apart from one mention on the kind of Warner Brothers wiki. And you know, you think about everything to do with Star Wars, even completely tangentially related bloke who looked a bit like Darth Vader came to our school but was called Darth Vader for legal reasons. You know, you will find big things about that in photographs. There's almost nothing about this. The credits are on YouTube and that's it. It must have been so bad, Tim. It couldn't have been any worse than the actual Bugs Bunny in Space stage show, though. I think what actually happened was that they mashed up the concept of Bugs Bunny in Space with Bugs Bunny meets the superheroes. And they just thought, yeah, that'll do. OK, well, we're staying sort of... I mean, I did mention Star Wars, so I am kind of making this torturous, convoluted link from something I have said. We are staying in the cinema for your next choice, which is something that I must have seen, but I don't remember seeing at all. Walt Disney Productions' new action-packed spy thriller, The London Connection. The Aristocats and the London Connection at a cinema near you now. Okay, trailer there for the London Connection, 1979 Disney film, amazingly released in a double bill with the rescuers. Gary, was that when you saw it? It must have been, yes. It's hard to imagine now what it was like to be any sort of Disney fan in the 1970s because unless the films are on TV or literally out of the cinema, the only time you ever saw any Disney was on a bank holiday when the Disney Time clip show would be on BBC One. And that's probably where where I first heard about The London Connection, which was a Disney TV movie about spies that, as you said, was it was released theatrically in the UK and across Europe, but not in America. The film itself, I mean, it is what it is. It's set in London, obviously, so there are loads of British character actors in it. Roy Kinney is in it, Frank Windsor, Nigel Davenport, Dudley Sutton. And it was written by Gail Morgan Hickman, who I think wrote the first Dirty Harry movie. But if you imagine it... I would describe it as the Fast and the Furious Hobbs and Shaw if they knocked on doors and waited to be asked to come in. (laughs) I like that. I like the sound of that, yeah. No, it's more like imagine a 1970s Bond movie, but it's made by Disney on a TV budget. So I've told you, I think, everything you need to know about it. That's it. You know exactly what that movie's like. It's like Condor Man without the flying. You know, it's not great. But when I was a kid, my uncle bought me the British Spider-Man Weekly and my younger brother, Paul, got Mickey Mouse. And the London Connection was serialised as a half-page ad every week in Mickey Mouse before the film came out. I remember they pulled the same sort of trick with The Secret of Nim and Bits. I mean, neither of which were Disney, but, you know, obviously they knew a good thing when they saw it. But these things, like, they'd be absolutely packed with spoilers. It'd be like a screen ramp four minutes after a Marvel movie comes out. You know, you have these stories and you'd invest in them, you know, over eight or nine weeks. And then they'd stop on a cliffhanger. And the only way you'd find out what happened would be if you went to see the film, which is 
basically for kids it's like the equivalent of putting sweets next to the checkout the pester power that must have gone in to get me to go and see the london connection with the rescuers must have been absolutely immense because there's no way my parents would have wanted to go and see it otherwise and the very strange thing is you would immediately think of you know isn't that a little bit adult for kids who are going to see the rescuers but of course famously in the rescuers nobody ever quite got to the bottom of it but presumably disgruntled animator put some naked women at windows when they fly over a red light district <laughs> which wasn't spotted until you know years later when it was on video and initially it was just blows on the internet saying lol this is funny and eventually got bigger i think it's now been digitally retouched so that, that doesn't happen so they weren't that far removed in fact probably thought the connection was a more innocent one it's very all ages i'll put it that way very broad comedy and you don't have to wait that long for a stunt not great stunts but uh, you know stunts exist and the cast are very i don't know you could call it a polite cast i suppose it's people like dudley sutton frank windsor roy kinnear bruce bower who a lot of people probably don't know the name of but he's the very aggressive american guest in faulty towers uh-huh. who, who wants a waldorf salad and people like david kossoff as well they're not kind of not even not people you'd associate with action movies not even people you'd associate with unless they were playing a shop owner who shrugged after giving evidence <laughs> with kind of like itv gritty crime dramas yeah. to be fair roy kinnear did on every single one every single week play a shop owner who shrugged <laughs> There was almost like, a, probably still exists, but there was always almost a repertory group of American actors who were over here and got quite a lot of work as Americans because of the likes of Pinewood and Shepparton and what have you, where the you know, American movie makers would come over here and make movies. Michael Brandon wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for... No. <laughs> They film a lot of American movies over here. It is interesting though, Disney used to do that a lot. They put out a live action film, presumably, as you suggest, originally mostly TV movies, with a new animated feature. And it must have gone on in total for over three hours. But I don't remember feeling like that as a kid, because I remember seeing things like, Lord knows what cartoon they were with, but Candle Shoe, I'm fairly certain I saw before something. Hang your hat on the wind, the last flight of Noah's Ark. For some reason, it doesn't seem from this perspective like an obvious pairing like live action and ropey live action often at best yeah and the new cartoon but at the time it just made sense disney was very odd in the 70s i think disney really lost its way didn't it from just after robin hood and i think basically all the way up to beauty and the beast disney was sort of didn't quite know what it was doing i think the 70s would peak disney going mm, i don't know should we put our bambi again actually bambi was the first film i saw in the cinema because they released it in about 1977 so late 80s they started to get their act together probably as a result of video but it did at least give us the black hole you're going to be shocked to hear this but I've never seen the black hole I have to say it did nothing for me I would see trailers for it and you know adverts and I just thought this is just not for me I don't understand it either looking back I would have thought it would be right up my street but nope well what they should have done in that case was pitched it the same way as your next choice which is something that I didn't even know would happen until you mentioned it let's have a listen to this and see if you can work out who's singing. I can own it back. Spread the 
yes, that was Cliff Richard, or rather Black Knight, with Can't Keep This Feeling in. Gary, why was he changing his name here? So there's a point in the late 90s where Cliff Richard couldn't even get arrested, as my lawyers have instructed me to say. I think he was just really annoyed that his records weren't being played on Radio 1. I mean, he was in his late 50s at the time, to be fair, but he decided it was because, you know, the radio stations were being ageist. He literally said, I'm reading this out to you now, he literally said, oh, the contemporary presenters of music aren't interested in longevity. But, you know, he said that as if it were a bad thing. So he recorded this song, Can't Keep This Feeling In, which is a very late 90s cliff sounding song. But it sounds like Clive Fisher, which at that time was very much not a late 90s vibe. Apparently he was moaning to his producer that, oh, they don't want on the radio anymore. And his producer said, oh, leave it to me, Cliffy, my boy. And he had it massively remixed as a dance version. And then he had it sent out to hundreds of radio stations as like a black label record or a white label record. Or, I don't know. I'm not a DJ. Called Can't Keep This Feeling In, open brackets, stepchild mix, close brackets, under the pseudonym Black Knight, because he was so cliff at this point. And, you know, he's as bad as Ben Kingsley. And Kiss 100 and Choice FM and a few other urban stations around the country put it on the playlist. And, of course, then Cliff is all, ah, I told you, it's because you're ageist. The thing is, the remixed version is actually quite good. You know, it's contemporary sound for the time. And, you know, it's not as if Cliff couldn't sing. It's just his records weren't Radio 1. No, and that is something that's really annoying me about this whole story, is that it wasn't just him. It was people like Status Quo as well who actually tried to sue Radio 1 for not playing them. Going on and on about ageism and being unfair to their fans and how they didn't care about artists when they got past a certain age. No, it was just you weren't making, I'm not going to say very good records, because, you know, I'll be honest, I've not listened to much Status Quo or Cliff Richard from that era. There might be some good ones in there, so I can't really say that, but... The point is, they weren't making records that were aimed at Radio 1, and yet at the same time, you've got... Now, I know your mileage may vary depending on what you think they did in the 90s. We've got David Bowie, Scott Walker, Paul McCartney, to name just three, doing some of the best critically reviewed work of their career, and they all showed up on Radio 1 around then. Yeah. Bowie, constantly. And it also makes me think of, are you aware of, in the late 80s, Gilbert O'Sullivan, who I assume hadn't been played by Radio 1 since about 1973, apparently he was, you know, he overheard, I don't know, his kids or something listening to the Top 40 and the things like Jackie Body and so on. He's thinking, this is actually quite good, this. I wrote hit singles once upon a time. I could make a good record like this. Yeah. And he made a record as himself called So What, which was like a house record just with Gilbert O'Sullivan style lyrics. And it was a minor hit and it got a lot of club play. So you can't do it just without what If you want to do it without whining, yeah. you can pull it off. But to basically, when Scott Walker's just done two to say they're not interested in artists my age is it's a little bit much and also Cliff described it as in a slow black rhythm and blues style which you know, don't say that mate oh don't say that out loud well you know, it's true I mean you look at Can't Get You Out of My Head it's written by the bloke from Mud yeah okay and Kathy Dennis but you know it's written by the bloke from Mud you just think yeah it's not you know it's perfectly if, you know if he'd brought out a Radio 1 type record Radio 1 would play it instead of the Millennium Prayer well, that's it that's his next big hit isn't it it's Lord's Prayer set to the tune of Old Lang Syne which is basically Basically just one song to the tune of another from Sorry I Haven't a Clue. <laughs> 
stolen and rebadged as something spiritual uplifting for the changing of the millennium. I've got to say, it's an alright record, actually. But just yeah. the whole subterfuge thing. You, no, you didn't get anything over on anyone. You just made everyone involved look a bit daft, really. But then, also, if that's what you want to do, and if you want to produce, you know, start producing music that's like that. I mean, I think about Cliff was like, oh God, I'm going to sound like a proper Cliff fan. I'm not. I'm not, but I'm not a Cliff hater either. You look at Cliff in the 50s, is bringing out 50s type music and you know it stands up you know move it's still a great record cliff in the 60s he's moved to that sort of not quite tom jones type but then you look at late 70s mid 70s to early 80s some great new- devil woman is a great song miss unites we don't carry talk- carry written by b.a robertson so clearly had his eye on you know what was going on with you know- <laughs> i say the younger generation but <laughs> how old was b.a robertson at that point <laughs> but they're all you know they're all really decent contemporary songs but he just stopped he just stopped then he went right this is what i do and i'm just going to carry on doing that paul mccartney has never done that david bowie never did that they were always they always knew what was in- they were like barry cryer of, of music they always knew exactly what was contemporary they knew exactly what was going on at that point i really wish barry cryer a cool farmer in the city remembering pasolini <laughs> in fact if he did that to the tune of little wonder <laughs> oh we've missed out on something there haven't we never mind yeah you know, they've just continued to evolve and you know cliff could have done that and he didn't and that's his fault well speaking of evolution your next choice was an attempt to evolve frozen food which i don't remember these at all and from the sound of it i'm quite glad i don't <laughs> Okay, you'll find out in a minute why I've used the Everton squad from, I don't know, 1984 or whatever it was, singing Here We Go. Gary, what were Peter Johnson's flavoured chips? Oh, God, have you ever had a chip? They're nice, aren't they? You know, like, oh, potatoes are good, and then deep fried them like they're even better. And, you know, a bit of salt and vinegar, they're brilliant, aren't they? Do you know what happens when Peter Johnson looks at a chip? He says, yeah, but what if he tasted the smoky bacon? Yeah. So Peter Johnson, people who don't know him, and you lucky, lucky bastards. Peter Johnson was a businessman who owned Park Foods. You may as well still own Park Foods, I don't know. They were best known for selling Christmas hampers. I don't know if people still do this, but when I was a kid, you'd have, like, hamper sales, and your parents would give them a quid every week, and at Christmas, you'd receive... Oh, yeah, get this big cardboard box yeah, with, like, box. green livery, and then there'd always be, like, ham in that weirdly unham-shaped tin yeah. and things like that. Eagle now, isn't it? And or a box of biscuits with cheese, but they'll have like digestives in the shape of loaves of hovis and maybe a Christmas pudding if you were lucky. Basically, stuff he'd have just picked up in the supermarket any week of the year, but that's how he made his money. And though he was a Liverpool supporter, he bought Tranmere Rovers, and then when Everton was up for sale, he bought Everton for just the most inscrutable of reasons. I have no idea why he bought Everton. He ran the club into the ground. I'm not a huge football fan, but I am an Evertonian and just. Everton were pretty much, you know, were top on the big five clubs when he took them over, and now they're not, and I'll say no more than that. So, yeah, so he bought Everton, and then he thought, right, yeah, what else can I mess up? You know that thing I thought about years ago where, you know, if instead of chips tasting a salt and vinegar, they tasted a prawn cocktail? So that's how DJ Spubbles appeared. <laughs> DJ Spubbles! 
DJ Spuddles. They were flavoured oven chips and they were marketed as gourmet fries. I mean, they're neither of those two things. So they had different flavours. They had cheese and onion, spiced chicken, shrimp and lemon and garlic and fine herbs. Their big thing was they used natural ingredients. Now, I am not sure how helpful that is. I mean, cyanide's a natural ingredient. And also, that is generally alarm bell flavour-wise. I mean, imagine frazzles with natural ingredients. Things like that need, the whole point of them is they need to be so artificial that, you know, you actually have to open them at arm's length. Absolutely. You do not want to do this. You do not want bits of prawn in your prawn cocktails, crisps. You just don't. I mean, obviously, I tried them. There was a chip shop on Smithdown Road, which is the student district of Liverpool for people who uh, who don't care. And they opened up and their big gimmick was that they had these flavoured chips. Well, they presumably they fried them. And you're probably wondering what they tasted like. Can you imagine pouring hot water into a tube of Pringles and then leaving them for a bit? That's basically what they I don't did. want to imagine that, but thank you for giving me that. What's the taste version of an image oh yeah i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry everybody so yeah anyway that chip shop closed down like pretty much immediately and i don't think even iceland stocks dj spuddles anymore i have no idea if you can still buy dj spuddles i really hope that you cannot i don't know because the only things i've found are there are a lot of articles from the time with everton trying to blame their poor performance on him spending too much time on his flavored chips nobody's winning <laughs> you're not addressing the root causes of any situation of all the many varied factors involved in that that equation is just being ignored but also there's loads of articles mainly from the echo saying he may be on the verge of bringing them back it's looking hopeful nobody has hopes that these will be brought back but no. that's it they just seem to be constantly on the verge of being revived and then presumably not being revived because i've certainly had seen them apparently there was a real dj spuddles that did tie in promotion for them probably always <laughs> down at cream and howl at the moon you know like playing I don't know are there any chip themed records Saturday night's alright for frying oh no who knows I'm sure I suppose literally he had his chips I'll bat you it's upsetting nobody needs to make chips better they've reached the platonic ideal chips we do not need to make chips better they're okay as they are thanks get lost go and ruin another football club well before we strain to kind of legally inadvisable areas your next choice it's another attempt by someone to improve on something that was fine as it was Kings of the Wild Frontier originally released last summer now number 6 with 16 Toyers EP and from it it's a mystery Okay, no idea what I will have used there because at the time of recording couldn't find anything so it's probably It's a Mystery by Toya because this is kind of about the Shinsei mystery but actually the Shinsei miracle. I don't know, Tim, how your obscure knowledge of the early 80s is but do you remember a thing called the Rubik's Cube? Obviously it was huge and other manufacturers presumably wanted a piece of that action so they brought out the Shinsei mystery which was two cubes because if you like one cube you're going to love two cubes. But both of these cubes could be kind of sort of folded and turned into a sort of multicoloured spiky mace. And then you could fit one inside the other one and fold it in and out. So you get like a white and red cube could become like a white and black cube. You know, like those paper fortune teller things that only girls could make. Yes. Yeah, that dark art they would never explain to anyone male. That's exactly what they reminded me of. But basically, you'd exhausted every permutation inside five minutes because what it was not was a puzzle. It's like the manufacturers are just going in very hard on the cube element, but they hadn't taken the puzzle element into account. But what interesting 
intrigued me was apparently it was originally developed as the Yoshimito Cube in the early 70s and post Rubik's Cube it was bought and repackaged in the UK by Thomas Salter Toys which is a really evocative name who I also had the vision of it being just this bloke who basically just had ideas and made them regardless of whether they're any good or not because they did all kinds of like chemistry sets there was a model they did of the General Lee from the Dukes of Hazard for no apparent reason and also they did do you remember they used to be kind of robot like claw hands where it was like a big long blue pole with a squeeze handle at the end and you pulled it and like the claw kind of like closed as if picking up a test tube or something let me tell you that story I've got a story about that Tim oh god so I had one of those at the time actually the one I had didn't have a claw it had a robot hand you'd squeeze at one end and a hand would close at the other end was it like kind of a bronze hand like Redford from Evie's Pink Windmill Show very similar type yeah actually, no, actually, I think it was silver but yeah it was that type of thing when I was a kid I had that one and then it just hung around over the years anyway Anyway, when we moved into our house, oh God, we had an outside toilet. We had an indoor toilet as well, but we had an outside toilet. And the thing is about outside toilets were if you had an outside toilet, you wanted to get rid of it because it just it was a signifier of awful times in the past. So we got the grandfather of a friend of mine from school to come and fix this thing. And he did, fair enough, you know. It turned out what he didn't do was cap the pipe. And so over a period of the next few years, water would be spurting out of this pipe and into the alleyway next to our house, at which point a a sinkhole appeared. (laughs) in the alleyway which apparently disturbed this is like mousetrap in reverse it disturbed a colony of rats some of which then got into our house which i discovered one i went into like the utility room and a rat ran across the utility room and i shrieked like an old maid from 1940s film and ran into my living room thought what we're going to do what we're going to do so we got rent to kill out and they put out the little rat poison and eventually they all died and it was fine you know we got rid of them and it was great then about two weeks later there was a smell and there was a smell in the living room. I thought, this is bad. This is definitely bad. And I went behind the television, which is where the smell was, and still, at that point, there was a smell, but there was no cause for the smell. So I pulled back the television, and my uncle who lived with us, the guy who bought me the Spider-Man comic, it was just me and him in the house at the time, and we pulled back the carpet, and the smell was very, very bad. And we pulled up the floorboards, and underneath the floorboards was, as you probably guessed, a decomposing rat, which is not the nicest thing you want to get in your living room. And so I looked at my uncle, my uncle looked at me, and we went, mm, I don't really want to pick that up. And he didn't want to pick that up. And I thought, how are we going to get this out? And then I remembered the robot hand <laughs> so I ran upstairs to the loft and I got this robot hand down and ran downstairs and went, right okay you get the bag and I'll pick it up and what I'm not Tim is a structural engineer and I picked up this rat with the robot hand and all I remember is the sound it went like this this rat broke in half <laughs> so I had to go back and get the other bit of the rat and pick it up and put it in the bag. So the robot hand, so I'm glad about the robot hand. But that's not really anything to do with the Shinsai miracle, is it? I was going to say it beats my story about them, which is literally just that I can remember thinking when I was really young about the red pincer hand ones, thinking, do you know, if you had two of them and two sonic ears, which is the, again, I think it was a Thomas Salter thing, but it's like a 
listening devices you supposedly hear sounds from yeah you know, like a big sort of sound gun that you could hear supposedly noises from streets away if you had them and do you remember there used to be those i can't remember exactly what they were but like white plastic glasses with like red lenses that yes. you know sort of made your vision a bit space when you look through them I remember thinking if you had all of those you'd be like some kind of crazy indestructible robot still thinking that each one of those things would actually impede you physically <laughs> and also how could you hold all four things at one point <laughs> but like you say yeah very little to do with what we started talking about well there was a kind of gold rush of puzzles in the wake of the rubik's cube and the fact that rubik himself couldn't come up with like, the magic in the clock something that capitalized on what he'd done nobody else was going to no let's do four by four rather than three by three maybe that'll do something i don't know but yeah this shinsai miracle anyway was a sort of minor hit maybe 37 in the charts did well enough to get a sequel, which was the Shinsai Miracle, which is really hard to describe. But if you can imagine like two black and gold, very low poly count rings that you could sort of fold up into two interlocking sections and then fit together as a cube. Because as you know, you know, kids love a cube. We've established that beyond a doubt. They love a cube. But then you could change the configuration in such a way that you could fit your Shinsai mystery inside it. And that was it. That was all there was to it. And I wasted a Christmas present slot on it. And I am still furious. I'd have been better off getting another robot hand. Honestly, it's a five minute wonder. That's it. Once you've done it once, it's not like the Rubik's Cube where, you know, you solve it and then you can just sort of mess it up again and do and have another go at solving it you know there's no repeat value to this thing well it had that branding as well as if it was aimed at sophisticates you know which obviously rubik's magic did and a couple of other things but in the 80s people that kind of branding was aimed at they were getting you know there was looking down beer it's getting swatches you know getting cd players before anyone else had them and i don't know probably buying alice becks and howard albums they weren't going to be buying a puzzle that you know, we just sit there. No, no, exactly. Buy another Sade CD, that's what you need to do. Okay, well, start your last choice now. We started with a Liverpool themed novelty record and we're finishing with one. I actually misidentified this. I've blamed completely the wrong person for this, but we'll find out who was actually responsible in a minute. One, two, three, four. When I was a lad, I'd never seen a quid. Lived in a terraced house, eating cabbage and lips. Sleeping, falling a bed, nowhere to put me head. And playing the fool, and sang in school. Me dad was on the sick, there wasn't much to do. Shoes were full of holes, and me toes were sticking through. Spuds in all me socks, taking plenty of knocks, and playing out. Then me mam would shout, get in here you, hey, sit there in the chair. Eat your fish and chips. Before I part your hair, I think you've got a cheek. Lens a couple of bob, I shut your gum. Okay. You may be thinking that sounds like Shut Up Your Face by the Joe Dolce Music Theatre. It does, but it's Shut Your Cob by Lee Brennan. No, not that Lee Brennan. So, Gary, I couldn't find anything out about him. I don't really want to know. I don't really want to know why he did this, but tell us what you know. So this is the first thing I ever saw on a video recorder, which is just, what a waste. I think we knew it was going to be on Tiswas, and we were going to be out on that Saturday, so my uncle's recorded it for us. He didn't have a VHS. He didn't have a Betamax. He had a Video 2000 which is like the bronze medal in a boxing match. 
It was dreadful. If you imagine it, it's like I watched this video of this man, this Lee Brennan, who's not the Lee Brennan that you think he was. I watched it on Video 2000. It was like watching, you imagine like a stop motion Lego video of giant haystacks but you're watching it through green tissue paper. That's what it was like watching anything on Video 2000. It was a terrible format. So, yeah, so this song, it's a perfect example of a spoof of a spoof. Yeah, why was it needed? It wasn't the only one either, because Andrew Sachs did one as Manuel. I know. Which was withdrawn because they said it was sort of impugning the artistic integrity of Shut Up Your Face. And permission was withdrawn for the release, but they let this come out. I don't know. I don't understand. It's like, you know, when Benny Hill or Ross Abbott do like a comedy sketch based on something like the Batman TV show. And they take it at face value and not realise that it was already a spoof. So this is obviously this is a takeoff of Midge Yours' favourite song, Shut Up Your Face by Joe Dolce, who's an Italian-Australian or Australian-Italian. I don't know which way around it is. But instead of it being about growing up as an Italian, it's about growing up as a scouser. So, you know, it's getting near you, hey, sitting in the chair, eating fish and chips before a party there. I think you got a cheek. Lens a couple of Bob. Ah, shut your gob. None of which is funny, whereas Shut Up Your Face was quite funny. Exactly. I mean, Shut Up Your Face is already a comedy song. I don't understand it. It's not like, why are you climbing Everest? Well, you know, because it's there. It's just, you know, it's like sarcasm's the lowest form of wit. Doing a spoof of what is already a comedy song is the lowest form of wit. This is terrible. But again, like Googie the Liverpool Duck, for some reason, it was absolutely huge. It really was. And I don't understand it. I owned a copy of Shut Your Gob. I had about three records when I was a kid. And this was one of them. What was I thinking? Well, what little I found out about Lee Brennan is, again, he's not the one out of 911. So everyone stopped thinking that. I don't know if he was even born at that point, but he was a repeat offender because he also did singles called The Shanks as in Bill Shankly, which would have been released around the time, you know, Bill Shankly being the generation before, and, you know, a lot of kids would have said, who's that? And he should have done the record with Bob Paisley. But also, he did Giz a job to cash in on Boys and the Blacks. He was not helping our regional image, I don't think. And he also did an album slightly earlier about his Merseyside, which had songs on it called The MPTE Blues, which obviously is Merseyside Passenger Transport Executive. So what blues they gave you, apart from the 82 being late, I don't know, but also Jumbos That Speak, which sadly is not about the Chinese takeaway. It's about them having jumbo jets at the airport. Oh. Can you guess, though, who I mistakenly thought it was by? It wasn't Alexi Sale, was it? No, it was somebody from Radio Merseyside. Brian Jakes? I blamed Brian Jakes, who we're going to have to oh, explain that. Brian Jakes. Brian Jakes was kind of a local legend. Now, acclaimed novelist. Absolutely brilliant raconteur, very skilled broadcaster, but he had a show on Sundays where if you were a child being forced to listen to it, to say maybe an elderly relative's house, it went right through you. The best way I can describe it. And it had a song at the very beginning that we burnt into the minds of successive generations that went, There's drizzle on the cobble in the early morning, that's my Liverpool. When you're half eaten butty in your lace undone, you're going to be late for school. <laughs> that's why I thought he did shut your gob, I think because oh, it's God. more or less the same thing. Honestly, I don't know. I, I mean, whenever I look back at stuff like that, you know, in the sort of 70s and 80s, I totally get why we have the reputation we had. I think 
Oh God, yeah, it's just oh, there's nobody better than us. Oh, we're the best, we're the best. Oh, by the way, we're really poor as well, and we're always on the rob. Or if we're not on the rob, we're on strike. Or on the sick, as Googie's old man was. Think on, mate. Just no, do you know we didn't help ourselves. But now, obviously, you know, you get people like us, you know, you, you and I, Tim, you know, we're just, you know, we're just very cultured people who never say shut your gob to anybody. I can't possibly comment on that, but I was so sophisticated that, you know, I didn't even try Peter Johnson's flavoured chips. <laughs> you did not miss out. I mean, it's interesting, though, that, you know, we're both kind of recoiling at the memory of shut your gob, but it was, it was huge. And is there a kind of aspect of, I mean, we're both looking back at it now and saying things like that didn't help, but... At the time, was it like a trench humour mentality, you know, digging in? Like, we're here, we might as well try and weaponise it back, but it sort of backfired. I do think there's an element of that. I do think when you are being attacked, you do sort of retrench a little bit. I suppose it's that thing about, you know, I can have a go at anybody in my family, but if anybody has a go at my family, that's my cousin you're talking about. It's a bit like that, you know, it's that sort of, we can say we're dreadful, but if anybody else says we're dreadful, you're going to get punched in the face, which obviously, you know, is part of the image as well. Well, in the hope that Lee Brennan's cousin isn't listening to this, which would not be a good thing given what you just said, but what would you have chosen to be the first thing that you saw on video if it wasn't him performing Shut Your Gob on Tisfos? Oh, God, literally anything. I don't know. I mean, what year would it have been? It would be about 1980, 80, 81, maybe. Regeneration of Tom Baker into Peter Davison. I don't know. Just literally anything other than some bloke with a beard singing Shut Your Gob in the broadest, most humorless way. Well, you do realise, now that you've mentioned it, that's going to show up on YouTube. <laughs> Somebody will reply to us on Twitter linking to it, so you'll get to relive that all over again. Delete him with Twitter accounts, I'll see you around him. <laughs> Can't say fairer than that. Gary, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Tell me back. Thanks a lot. Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org. in the early morning that's my Liverpool with a half-beaten footy and your lace undone you're gonna be late for school and the ship with the cargo of containers coming in through the locks and the bus with the cargo of hangovers heading down to the docks my Liverpool's a town of dogs and kids all kicking up in the streets